0: up podcast listeners. This is a special episode because I don't usually interview guests anymore, but when it comes to people like Jonathan Goodman from the Personal Trainer Development Center and the Online Trainer Academy, I will always say yes. Jonathan is a godfather when it comes to online training and anything on the online space for fitness trainers and I was so excited to have him on my show again to talk about COVID, how to adapt and just life in general. So here we go. Hello boys and girls. Welcome back to another episode of Cut the Shit, Get Fit. I am your lovely host for Fal and I am bringing you another legend, the godfather of online training, Jonathan Goodman. Say hello. Hey, what's
1: going on? Uh, don't ask me to repeat your last name three times fast, please.
0: <laughs> Honestly, I've grown up with people butchering my first and last name. So, like, I don't even take offense to it. Most people just, like, they look at the first two letters and they're like, yeah, no, no, that's not I,
1: I would I would call you F-I-L. Like, in my head, I call you F-I-L, yeah. um, which I know isn't your name, so that's super disrespectful. But it's not even, it's not even I mean, your last name. People butcher my name. I mean, my name's Jonathan. Yeah. I had no idea until we started doing as much business overseas as we do how many Mm -hmm. different ways there are to spell Jonathan. (laughs) I mean, there's the obvious, J. like, my name's Jonathan, and I go by John a lot of the time uh, in in, in informal circumstances. So it's J-O-N, right? So I get J-O-H-N all the time. The amount of times I get Johanathon, J-O-H-N-A-T-H-O-N, Like, that's not actually a thing. Yeah. But it's not just complicated names that get butchered, if that's any solace to you. Uh, Simple names get butchered, too, just as bad.
0: Actually, funny enough, like, my wife's name is Angel. Like, that is, like, probably one of the easiest names to remember. And she had to pick up a package, and they spelt her name D'Angelo. I'm like... Well, yeah, they on. thought she
1: was a 1990s Owen B singer,
0: obviously. I, I guess so, yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but I would—I mean, I see—I see Angel, and I'm always—I mean, if it's a female, not so much, but if it's guy, I always think hell. Mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, yeah. Because we spent so much time in Spanish-speaking places, like Jesus, Jesus, like, mm-hmm. so it's not—it's not always straightforward pronouncing it too. But if it's female, it would, yeah, it would always be Angel, I guess.
0: Yeah. Anyway. For sure. Um, so let's kind of start this thing off with some easy questions like I always do. So what are you reading right now?
1: I am reading, um, I just picked up Warren Buffett's biography. I actually just uh, ordered 22 books, had 22 books arrived. So basically, <laughs> it's, it's actually a good question for me right now because there were a lot of questions that I've gotten over. Um, you know, what my process is for figuring out what to read. And my process is basically anything that anybody that I respect or trust, mm-hmm. anything they recommend, I immediately put on a list, and I don't even look at what it is. And it, I particularly like people who I don't agree with but I respect okay. because I find that I often learn the most and get the most interesting viewpoints. It's like if somebody doesn't agree with you, or you, you have principles that are opposite theirs, but they're really smart and successful. You can usually learn a lot from them yeah and so one of the things that i do is i just i just put down and then i will basically just like order the entire list of books and so 22 books arrived at my house last week i've finished four of them and i'm on the warren buffett one which take me a while and it's this really interesting variation of books like everything from like how to get rich to warren buffett a lot on um evolutionary psychology there's uh there's a fair bit on just basic psychology like like there was a little book, it was really great, called Lying by Sam Harris that I really enjoyed basically about how we should just never lie and how white lies even are bad and made a very convincing argument towards that that um, will probably change a lot of how I act. You know, it's very easy to justify little white lies, Yeah. but the way that that diminishes trust over time with people isn't, simply isn't worth it. And so anyway, so I think that that's, um, I'm, I'm really excited about reading these. And what was cool is the book showed up at my house and I'm opening the boxes and I'm opening the box with my son. He's like doing half and I'm like, cool. Oh my God. Oh my God. Like I had no idea what was in the boxes. Yeah. And so if somebody asked me, like, Hey man, how do you, how do you figure out what to read? I'm like, it's actually a lot simpler than you think. I'd rather spend time reading than researching what to read. Hmm. And so whenever anybody that I trust recommends something, I just put it on a list. And then every once in a while, I just order everything from the list. And uh, and and if I'm starting to read something that's not interesting, I just put it down. I put it away. Yeah. You know, don't think anything of it. To me, that's a better use of my time and also my money than spending a lot of time like reading reviews and descriptions and stuff like that and sure. trying to like wade through it. You know, I have no qualms. If there's a book that I'm reading that I'm like, and eh, this isn't for me. I just put it down and don't think about it again.
0: Oh, fair enough. What's interesting too is like I don't really trust other people's recommendations sometimes because like right now I'm when you find people you find
1: people (laughs) whose like there are (laughs) certain friends of mine that I have found over time that we uh, we have similar interests and and we like similar things so you you figure that out like somebody makes a recommendation like this is the best book I ever read. And then you read it and you're like, dude, that was junk. Yeah. I mean, you're not going to listen to that, that person's recommendation. I also look at like where people are in their life. Uh, like what was it? The Four Agreements by uh, Miguel Ruiz, I think mm. it is. People are like, oh my God, this is the most meaningful book ever to me. And I read it and I'm like, this is pedantic nonsense. <laughs> but it's also, if I had read that as like the first spiritual self-development book I ever read, it probably would have been really impactful. Yeah. But I much follow, so I look at like where people are along in their journey too, and kind For of changing sure.
0: that. Yeah, like the book that I kind of waited to start reading is *Sapiens*, and I'm almost done it. And I oh, remember when I, I know when it first came out, I saw a lot of people not like it. But now that I'm going through, it, I'm like, this is actually pretty good. I like it. I like how they keep going into history, and that's what kind of now I'm kind of diving into is more history books. And, like, most recently, too, like, um, my wife and I are obsessed with the um, Broadway play Hamilton. So I bought the okay. Hamilton autobiography, and I'm like, that's my next thing in queue. And I'm like, I can't wait to, like, dive into history now. Yeah, yeah. like, yeah.
1: Yeah, I, Sapiens is is one of my old times, for sure. I've heard it through a few times. I read his, his next two as well, Homo Deus and, and 21, Lessons for the 21st Century. And uh, and it's, I mean, I think Yuval Noah Harari, who's, who's the author of that, is arguably the clearest thinker today. Yeah. The way that he is able to bring a tremendous amount of information and make sense of it and generate lessons out of it mm-hmm. is is really unmatched of anything that I've seen. And so anybody who tells me that they didn't like that book, uh, I would say... Pick it up again because uh, you might have just been in a state where you weren't ready to respect the quality of the information, which is which absolutely happens. Yeah, but, um, but Sapiens to me is a, a extraordinarily important book that I think everybody should read. Um, and what's uh, Yuval Harari has written some really interesting things with COVID as well uh, going on and, and the impacts of COVID and the impacts of uh, military state that we're kind of in as a result of it and what might come out of that. And it's actually pretty frightening uh, yeah. as well. So, uh, yeah, he's somebody who I definitely recommend following.
0: Okay. Um, since we already kind of brought up COVID, I'm kind of curious, like, do you think that coaches in general have adapted quick enough or effectively enough during this time? <laughs> cause like, it's so different, like, depending on where you are in the world, cause it's like,
1: uh, not even close. Um... <laughs> That's a funny question. Um, I didn't even let you finish it. Uh, go on. Yeah, I know. Complete your question. Uh, complete, go,
0: keep, keep going. Um, so like, For me, the moment we shut down the gym, I was already like, we need to figure this shit out. And like, I've never worked so hard in my life, like morning until night. And then like even dreaming, I'm thinking about what we had to do to adapt. And the moment that our government allowed gyms to reopen, we were like ready. Everyone came in, it went so smoothly and I was like, okay, this was a success. But then seeing other people online where they're struggling, where say their Mm -hmm. state or province would open gyms, close gyms, or people just kind of sat around waiting for whatever to happen. Like it kind of, I don't know, for me kind of filtered out some people out where they didn't really look at this as their career and just something that they're doing, which is, I don't know, kind of sad. And at the same time, kind of good, but now I'm kind of rambling, but I would love to hear your take on this.
1: My take on this is, is overall, I'm, I'm really hopeful. Um, The fitness industry as a whole had a lot of really serious issues. It's a very young industry. It's an industry that has grown up to be extremely immature. And uh, as a result, there's a lot of people in it that unfortunately are not being well served by it. The entire business model that evolved was inherently flawed. I mean, it didn't serve anybody, the the way that big box gyms work, the way that commercial gyms work, the way that trainers were treated, the margins that gym owners were taking, the business model that most of them were, were in, and then the way that it served clients. I mean, you go to a gym, you work with a coach, whether it's small group training or with a trainer, the coach in the gym's job, by definition, is to optimize the training environment for that client. That's what the client's paying for. Well, most gyms, based purely off of the constraints that they've built, is forces them to not optimize the environment for the person. I mean, a perfect workout is never 30 or 45 or 60 minutes long exactly, and if you're five minutes late, you miss five minutes of it. Like, it is not fair to tell my client, who's um, the chief of psychiatry at one of the biggest hospitals in Toronto, that if he's five minutes late for his workout or if there's an emergency in the psych ward, he loses his money for that day because he didn't give me 24 hours notice. Like, sorely, what's going on in the psych ward is probably way more important. And so, and and that's just one example, right? you got to show up at the exact location. I mean, there's just, there's all of these reasons why the... The model that gyms, that brick-and-mortar gyms are built on, that the entire fitness industry really used to be precipitated on, is just flawed. It was brittle. And this is, I mean, COVID was, it was unpredictable that a pandemic would come. Well, that's not quite true. A lot of experts actually knew that a pandemic would probably come at some point. Yeah. But, um, and, and as it got closer, a lot of people were shouting very loud and nobody was listening. So I can't quite say that it was unpredictable that it would come. But the majority of uh, the population, the general consensus was that um, was that they were surprised by this, whether that's justified or not is a whole nother argument. And it's, it's not... It's a cataclysmic event that is a readjustment. And it's actually a much needed readjustment in the fitness industry. I wrote an article called The Fitness Industry is Broken, A Story of Hope. Not too long after COVID hit and everything got shut down and everybody was yelling about how they were going to be in serious trouble. And my main point, I mean, you can find the article on our website, but my main point in that article was that was a little bit about what I've said, you know, nobody was really doing well. But it wasn't quite bad enough that it forced anybody to really evolve and adapt. I mean, smart people who got ahead of it did. Like we've been telling people that they need some sort of online component to their business since 2012. And you know how many people actually listen to us that probably should have? It's a tiny percentage and that's extraordinarily frustrating because the people who did and the people who signed up for our courses and programs and took action on it really are actually winning big when COVID happens. I'll I'll tell you a story of of Hadeus Acuna who um, had a gym, which arguably has uh, the most, the, the, the best name ever for the situation. His gym's name is literally Resilient Fitness in Tucson, Arizona. And he bought Uh, our original course called 1K Extra back in like 2013, 2014, to be honest, didn't do a ton with it. But then um, when we evolved it to the Online Trainer Academy certification 2016, he basically took another look at it, and he was ready. He still ran his gym, but he was ready. The most he had ever done in his gym to that date in a month was 8,000. COVID came, shut down his club. He immediately knew how to adapt because he was prepared right um first month of covid he did 10000 second month 11000 third month fourth month 12000 each i was on the phone with him last week because he's like well i don't know if i want to open up my gym again <laughs> like i you know and and what we basically came to i mean i didn't um he's in level 2 of the online trainer academy now which is like more of coaching which is why you know i'm, I'm kind of coaching him through this but i didn't give him advice i mean it's not my place to say open or not open you know he's got two young kids but it was basically, you're kind of in a in a really fun situation now. You love lifting, you love the gym, but you don't actually have to make the majority of your revenue from your brick and mortar studio. Isn't that a beautiful thing? Now you can keep it open and run it the way that you want to run it so that it serves your people best so that you can play and have a place to play and work out that's your home. And basically just pay the bills but not want to support your family because your online training is making twelve plus thousand dollars a month. And his rent is 1700 and his equipment's paid off. His equipment's not quite off. He's got a bit of debt, but part of what we talked about was also, like, how he's going to now pay off his equipment, so he has no debt. And so, think about that story for a minute. Like, when preparation meets opportunity, right? Like, he was ready to go so it's it i'm hopeful at what's going to come out of this because there were a lot of people who were not doing well in the fitness industry gym owners trainers even clients to be honest Mm -hmm. and but it wasn't quite bad enough that anybody really did anything and that a lot of people did anything they kind of just coasted covid came and it said uh in 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 vulgar terms shit or get off the pot like if you're in get fucking in or leave And both are fine. Honestly, both are fine. Because I would rather see somebody who is doing not that good but not bad enough to make them quit. I would rather see them quit and find something that they're passionate about and go forth with that than I would see them stay in a situation that's not great for them. Whereas on the other side of the coin, people are forced to evolve and level up and they're going to be way better. And they're going to offer a way better service to their clients. You know, online training doesn't mean that you film videos over Zoom. Online training simply means that you take advantage of available technology and automation so that you can offer your clients what they need, when they need it, how they need it. To me, that's optimizing the environment for them. And by the way, you can also do that in a way that serves you better as a business owner by giving you better profit margins, more time flexibility, and location flexibility. Like, that seems like a win-win to me, dude. Yeah. So I'm, I'm hopeful at this. Um, I, think what, I think we're going to look back at this as a pretty pivotal point as a time when, when the industry really was forced to grow up out of its really stupidly awkward teenager phase.
0: Yeah, big time. Yeah, like, for us, like, I almost looked at COVID as, like, it forced us to evolve, and now mm-hmm. that we've been reopened, we still have the option of people doing our classes online, and yeah. they're full. And, like, it just works better for people's schedules, too, because it's like, oh, if I'm running late from work, I can still make it home and still, you know, get on Zoom and do the class. Jump also, on at
1: 6, 12 p.m. and yeah. join the class. yeah.
0: yeah. And like, even in person, now that we have these workout pods, our gym's never been cleaner. Like it's so organized, like, whereas before it was just a madhouse. And now our coaches actually like the system better with workout pods. Everyone is like stationed and everything like that. And I don't know, I think we did a pretty good job because even when we shut down, we were only online with classes. Like we had 60% of all of our members continue to pay their membership dues because they had the option to work out at home. And we just gave out all Mm of our equipment and Mm -hmm. like you let people borrow it you like yeah yeah okay cool like we literally had one day where we just like put out all of our equipment out the front and people just picked it up but um i don't like i feel like if you have pride of what you do you just this is like there's no question like covid comes you're like okay and i have to adapt to it not like oh no what am i gonna do is someone gonna do this for me right what forced you to be better yeah
1: i mean that's what that's what hard times do um, what do they say? you know, pressure makes diamonds, like, yeah. well, pressure also squashes ants, so like <laughs> both uh, you know like like both things happen, and um people like you evolve, which is cool, and then as a as the gym owner, I've given some uh we we have, we have a lot of stuff behind the scenes that we don't talk about, but uh you know, consultancy type stuff with like Lodge. Gym corporations, um, where we help them figure out online training, but also uh, I've done some some a lot of talks to like high end masterminds of gym owners and stuff like that, and help them navigate through. And I mean, when it comes to gym ownership, really the game is maximizing revenue per square foot. Um, companies like Orange Theory and F forty five and those guys kind of did it by squishing as many people as possible into a small area. We're like, that ain't gonna fly anymore. So uh, at least for not for a long time. And and I wouldn't be surprised if those companies shut down a lot of especially those franchise I mean, nobody's gonna pay three hundred and fifty thousand dollars for an F forty five franchise when they can't, you know, put forty people in a in a tiny square footage. It's yeah. just the numbers don't work out. But it the game is all maximizing profit per square foot. I mean, that's what allows you to out compete. And outspend and outserve and, out and all of these things. Well, in, and, and then you look at, at leaks in revenue and in profit for gym owners with clients who move away, clients who want to make referrals to somebody who doesn't happen to live 20 minutes from your gym, mm-hmm. like all of these things. Well, now you can absorb all of that, right, as a gym. Think about what that does to your bottom line. Think about the advantage that gym owners, particularly community gym owners, now have in the market. Um, I've, I've been in a lot of really interesting conversations with um, top business development people, with a lot of the biggest fitness corporations worldwide in the last few months, just, private, just because I'm friends with them, like private conversations about what's going on. Mm-hmm. And the general consensus is what's going to come out of this is, by and large... Large commercial facilities are going to go away. Um, not all of them, you know, they'll still exist. We're already seeing it, right? Like 24-Hour Fitness has shut down a bunch, Gold's has yeah. shut down a bunch. I mean, we're already seeing it. But the, the entire model was largely precipitated on a tremendous amount of low-end membership sales and people not showing up to the gym. And, um, and, and a lot of them, you know, five and 10 year leases, huge overhead costs, all that kind of stuff. And they're just not going to be able to recover. I mean, there's just not much else to it, but the companies that are doing really well out of this, even the large companies are the companies with communities. So like Zumba is doing really well. Beachbody is doing really well out of this. And they've you know, they've pivoted to be online a lot more for sure, but really they're doing well because they have a good community you know, say what you want about those companies, they understand community. And I don't have anything else. So I think that they good. They do good work for the people that they work with. And so community gyms, I think the micro gyms, the, the two to four location type facilities or even solo facilities in their community are going to thrive because the ones that are smart enough to adapt and add an online component to their offerings – are the ones that now can generate way more revenue per square foot. They're going to be able to make personal connections with their community. Their overhead costs are going to be a tiny, comparatively. But now their community is going to be able to refer people that are outside the community to that gym. That's where the power is going to be. And the gym isn't going to be limited by location. So they're going to be able to keep the overhead costs really low. That's where it's going to get super interesting. Okay.
0: Now, if we had to like use a crystal ball and we were like looking two years down the road, how do you think COVID will leave its mark on not only the fitness industry, but the world in general?
1: Oh, man. You want my uh, utopic or, uh, or dystopic viewpoint of this? <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you want. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm reasonably pessimistic about a lot of the long-term ramifications of COVID, just because I'm, I'm frightened um, in a lot of ways. The precedents that have been set now, and I don't disagree with them, by the way which is which is probably the most interesting thing about my viewpoint, I really don 't know what a solution is. I don't disagree with it. Yes, I think you should wear a mask. Yes, I think you should be respectful of other people. yes, I think like all like I agree with all of that. I'm not somebody who's like, nobody should agree like nobody should wear a mask like nothing it's I, like not at all, but I'm scared because now there's this precedent of what to do when um, there's any kind of a pandemic, and, and pandemics of this sort, I mean, are gonna like like with globalization, it's gonna keep happening. And and how do you define it? You know, like the Ebola scare a couple of years ago. If that happens now in the future, we're gonna snap back into COVID time. And so it's it's kind of given permission for governments to to permit sort of martial rule on societies and snap back into it much quicker and and that's kind of frightening for me because if you look back in history this is a lot of Yuval Harari's thinking actually if you look back in history at any time that this happened the examples that he gives is Israel because he uses his own homeland as examples of like the bad stuff so that nobody can give him crap on it (laughs) if you look at like Israel during the the seven day war and the Yom Kippur war and and a lot of the a lot of the wars they were in, I mean, they snap back into into wartime rations and wartime laws and stuff like that. Those generally, historically, don't go away once the war is over. I mean, you're not on food stamps anymore, but, like, just to give you an idea, like, he gives this example, and I can't remember the exact terms of it, but cupcakes were actually illegal in Israel up until, like, 15 years ago. Wow. Because it was just, it was just like a wartime law that just like nobody thought about, right? And that's of course an, an obscure, obscene example, but it just shows you that once it becomes okay for things like surveillance on phones, for things like um, over, uh, uh, over like exposure of, we're well, not overexposure, but just wearing masks inside and i mean once these things become accepted they're not it's not just like oh we got a vaccine that's gone like that's not going to happen yeah you know the state that we're in now in toronto canada we're going to be here for a very long time so basically we've we've gone back to ontario has treated covid by and large really really well um I don't know, maybe people in Canada are just <laughs> really respectful <laughs> of each other. But, um, but for the most part, like you go anywhere, like nobody argues about masks, like everybody puts it on, like it's, you know, we've, we've controlled the numbers exceptionally well. And so we were able to get back a, a pretty strong element of normalcy back into our lives where everything's open, right? Everything's open, regular hours. Inside, almost everywhere now, you're expected to wear a mask. And it's just like a knee jerk thing. Like everybody just kind of carries a mask with them and they put it on. And um, and people are kind of seeing their friends and stuff again, but like feeling kind of funny about it, but kind of doing it. This is going to be like this for a very, very long time. We're going to feel weird about hugging people and shaking hands for a very long time. That kind of like, uh, uh, you good about hugging? Like, I feel like everybody should almost walk around with bracelets like a green, yellow, red like green is like, I'm cool, give me a hug. Yellow is like, uh, elbow bump is good. Red is like, now nah, I want to keep my distance. And just everybody should just have that on them. So there's none of this like, oh, are you a hugger? Um, because once, you know, once a vaccine is found, um, it's gonna be a long time. It's it's just become so normal that we do this stuff. And then the other is from a business standpoint, the precedents that have been set. Here's where it impacts the fitness industry quite a bit. Now there's this essentials and non-essential business tag. And I'm surprised more people aren't talking about this.
0: Because
1: mm-hmm. consider what that means. Now some industries are considered essential. Some industries are considered non-essential. This is where industry lobbies are really important. And this is why the limp fitness industry shot itself in the foot and will probably never recover. The fitness industry lobby has always been incredibly weak. And as a result, they didn't do anything. They didn't lobby any governments really in any way to be um, considered essential in any strong way. I mean, people yelled on social media, but like nobody organized. Contrast that with the chiropractic industry. The chiropractic lobby has always been unbelievably strong. That's why their profession is very strong.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Well, they went back in stage two basically everywhere. Fitness industry went back in stage three or sometimes even stage four in some places. That seems kind of funny, doesn't it, that that would be the case. But really, it's the result largely of just one industry had a good lobby and the other industry is limp. Well, the next time that a shutdown happens, we're not going to lobby again. We're going to go back to the precedents. So the fitness industry now is forever going to be non-essential, one of the last to go back whenever anything shuts down. The result is now insurance companies that give insurance to businesses, companies that give loans to businesses, companies that lease square footage to businesses, all have reason and precedent and justification to charge more or be harder to do business with, with non-essential businesses. It's going to be way harder to get money loaned to you if you want to open up a fitness company. It's going to be way harder to uh, lease property if you're a fitness company. Because if I owned a commercial building, I'd want to lease that thing to essential businesses.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I'd give them a discount. I don't know why that's not being spoken of more. But that's going to be a really, really interesting long-term ramification of what's going on. Interesting.
0: Yeah, because, like, even for us, because we also have a clinic attached to the gym, and both are chiros. Like, even when we first shut down, they were they were able to treat. And I found Isn't it that weird? Of, it's weird. I'm like, they literally go over top of someone's body and then like, thrust on them. Right. I'm like, how how is that okay? But then if you, like, had, like, a class and everyone was six feet away from each other... And wearing masks, yeah. that's not like it's so strange. My chiropractor
1: literally pulls both of my arms together, arranges my body, puts his knee on my knee, and thrusts down. <laughs> yeah. Like, how is that something that is safer? And I mean, I'm very happy with my chiropractor because I'm broken like a lot of people in the fitness industry. But like, how is that? <laughs> right? But yeah. that's, that is the result of, of the difference of lobbies, really. I mean, it's frustrating. Um, I mean, the other part of it, of course, is chiropractic is generally one-on-one whereas a gym is bigger and so mm-hmm. it's a matter of impacting more people and and i totally get i mean i'm i, I understand it's frustrating as all heck for for people who own gyms but i totally get the governments and a lot of municipal governments positions if you were to go into every single individual gym you could probably say you can open you can open you can't open but you can't really again set that because like then you'd have to do that for other industries. You can't. And then people are going to be yelling at you, you know, how many people are you going to have that are going to be qualified to do that? And then if there's a hundred gyms, it's going to take you a few weeks to do that. And then people are going to be yelling at you because you're at the end of the list and not the beginning of the list. And like mm-hmm. how do you I mean how do you manage that? I kind of get it. But uh, but anyway, this this essentials and non essentials tag, I think, is 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 fascinating because it's perfectly justifiable. for somebody loaning money to say, hey, Prime plus two for non-essential, Prime plus 1.5 for essential.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's also interesting, too, like, I've been following Alan Cosgrove's story of how it's been rough for him being (laughs) open and then closed. And then, on the flip side, too, like, I'm a huge Disney fan and I've been, like, reading every single article until Disneyland reopens so I can go. And, like, they're in talks with the governor right now of how they're going to reopen pretty soon like i think they're gearing towards like an october 1st wow opening plan and i'm like so disneyland could probably open before alan cosgrove's dream. probably that's, but that's crazy
1: yes yes but i mean it sounds ridiculous when you think of like the pure amount of people that are going to be going through there and the inherent risk yeah The economic impact that Disneyland closure has on the state and the municipality that they exist in is in a different universe from the economic impact that Results Fitness has out in California.
0: Yeah.
1: So, I mean, the the, the governor can put five people on that task, right, full time because it's worth it. And not even put a tiny fraction of one person on, uh, on, I mean, Results Fitness is great. Alan's great. But, like, you're pretty insignificant to your town's total revenue. I mean, not to your town's health because he has such a big impact there. But, like, to the amount of money that you're worth to the place that you live in in California, you're pretty insignificant. Disney World is not. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, <right? laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, you know, I kind of get it. Um even though. But I mean that's that's the world that we live in, right? Money talks. I mean, it seems ridiculous. It's like uh, uh, what's the best way to stave off covid? Um be healthy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um and and actually jesus who I I you know, I mentioned earlier, he was the gym owner with Zoe's fitness. Again, Why the name of his gym is like the best name ever. So at a certain point in his life, he weighed 200 plus pounds and was really overweight, and um, and he lost a whole and he had to have an inhaler and everything. He lost a bunch of weight. Well, basically, his gym was allowed to open, um, and then he caught COVID. Oh, jeez. And he was knocked out for three weeks. Like, like he, you know, he was always going to live, but I mean, he was like beat up by it, and he's just like if I didn't lose that weight, I might be dead. Like, legitimately, I might have died. And so we know that this is... And so, again, like, a testament to his gym's name, right? And also a testament to when preparation meets opportunity. Like, you don't... You you get healthy because you want to show off and get girls, obviously. But, like, you also get healthy because you want to be able to be around for a long time. I, you know, you want to be able to toss your kid up in the air at the playground and be that parent that everybody else envies they're too sore and and too tired to like play around and run around with kids and meanwhile the kids like running to you and you can toss them up and uh and and you want to be that adult who does that and you also want to be like you want to be pretty hardy and resilient and robust so that when a disease or something comes like you're going to be fine well the same with your business Right. You don't know when something's coming, but you figure at some point in your life, you're probably going to have somebody come and try to take out your knees or something come and try to take out your knees. I mean, that's just business. That's just life. Health and business. And so you prepare yourself, you prepare your business the same way as you prepare your body so that when it happens, yeah, it's going to hurt. It's going to suck, but you're going to be resilient with it. I think, I think haters is such a, a great example of both.
0: <laughs> yeah. Mean, yeah. Really. For sure. Um, so kind of switching gears from COVID cause I feel like we can talk about this like forever. Um, I th- I, we
1: will be, um, <laughs> whether you like it or not, we will be. <laughs> yeah.
0: So like, I think for the most part, a lot of people mm-hmm. look at you and in our industry as kind of almost like this thought leader that kind of has paved the way for a lot of online coaches and just an online presence. So, I'm kind of curious, like, what are you researching right now that you're really excited about?
1: What am I researching? Oh, that's a good question. The idea of thought leadership is really funny and silly to me. Um, I'm passionately curious, for sure. I am um, extremely disagreeable. And uh, that's both good and bad. You know, I think in any team, I think in any organization, I think in any industry, you need disagreeable people because they challenge everybody else. Whether they're right or wrong, they still challenge everybody else to uh, do better and be better. We did a, a project. It, it was funny. So when the um, when when COVID hit, we formed a, a coalition of health and fitness leaders, um, myself and Precision Nutrition, and um, uh, a few of the companies formed it and we did it industry-wide and we actually got a fair bit of coverage we got coverage in entrepreneur and, and a whole bunch of other places for it but basically what we did is we just basically said let's bind together as an industry and like support our industry versus everybody doing an individual one of the things we did is we put together this big manual of resources for people and it was downloaded like tens of thousands of times and what was interesting was that there were a bunch of articles. This is when I really realized just how disagreeable I was because I've always run my own company because I'm gloriously unemployable. and And so this is the first time in a long time where I've like gone into another company and like actually spoke about you know their materials to them. and uh, And they you know wanted to use some of their articles in this, and their articles were about online business development, and online coaching. And I was just like, guys, you've put these together really, really well. For anybody who knows, like, PN, like, uh, like, they do content as good as anybody yeah. in the world, in any industry. Like, yeah. like, you guys have put this together extremely well. But I think your information is actually pretty shit. <laughs> and uh and and i and i just laid out i was just like i don't agree with this point here's why i don't agree with this point here's why i think that this is bad information here's why i think that this is and it was just it was just funny um there because i mean pn is actually putting out way better business development information now but it's just not it's not your core competency as a business right like if we were to start putting out nutrition information we would do a bad job at it too and, uh, and so, you know, they were, they were trying to do, it, but they weren't putting a lot of resources into it now that they are, they're doing a great job with it. And it just, it showed me just how disagreeable <laughs> I was, um, which is, which is really valuable. And what I'm really continuing to build for myself, which is part of the reason why I'm reading a lot into evolutionary psychology is, um, building a really, really, really strong mental framework for decision-making, um, I think looking forward, if I can put on my, my, my visionary hat, uh, which I guess is just as bad of a term as thought leadership. Jeez, I hate myself. But if I can put on my visionary hat, you know, we're in an age where information's abundant, really the value, like everybody has an equal playing field in terms of access to information. Um, I think building a strong network is really, really important. But for the most part, resourcefulness and being able to collate information and make objectively good decisions based off of it, I think is the largest competitive advantage that anybody can have moving forward. And so building a really strong mental framework based off of uh, objective filters to allow you to remove biases, remove your emotions and also remove constraints. I mean, Human beings, everybody, myself included, are really, really good at making up stories in our own head of how things exist and believing those things to be true without a shadow of a doubt and then establishing constraints based off of that and then moving forward and trying to make decisions. Well, what's really important is actually removing those constraints because then a whole bunch of decisions. – I'll give an example from coaching – I spoke to Gary Wagner, who's an amazing coach with a great, great uh, following and platform and everything like that in Australia, Um, really well-renowned, been around for a long time. And uh, he's in our our level two of the Online Trainer Academy. And we spoke on the phone and he basically said, you know, I really want to build a scalable, more premium model so that I can spend more time with my family, so that all all of the reasons why, you know, freedom-based that he wanted to do it. Um, but you know, everybody that's coming to me is coming, uh, uh, to work with me. So how do I possibly do that? And I just, and I just stopped him and I said, I don't know if that's true. I said, you might be right. I'm not sure. What I am sure about is that neither of us know whether that's a fact or not. Neither of us know whether people are actually coming just because it's you and whether you have to be actively involved. And I'll tell you my experience from that. This is my conversation to Gary. I said, Gary, I'll tell you my experience with that. Um, I thought that that used to be the case with my company too, that I needed to be involved in every single thing and all the emails needed to come from me and all the communications needed to come to me. And I always had to be on the ones ones involved. And then you know what? It just got to the point where I couldn't. And so I wasn't, and nobody noticed. And that's kind of a kick in the ego nuts. But it's actually a really freeing feeling. Because when I said this to Gary, think about the constraints that that removed. The question went from, how do I scale a business where I am still actively involved in the delivery of it? To... How do I scale a business where my name and brand is associated, but I don't have to be involved day to day? Entirely different questions. And the only reason why you're able to see those questions the way that you're able to see them is that you removed the story that you told yourself that wasn't factual, but you believed was factual, which now allows you to make a better, more objective decision with a whole bunch of variables that didn't exist otherwise. Really, really interesting. So building a framework around, around that is something that I'm, I'm continually working on. And that's why I'm reading a lot of, I mean, a lot of investors, obviously Buffett and Charlie Munger are like leaders of that. Um, Principles by Ray Dalio is another book by an investor, talks about a lot of that. Um, a lot of the a lot of stuff we're written about Elon Musk, like there's an article called, I think, The Chef and the Cook by um, Tim Urban at Wait But Why talks about first principle thinking. Um, a lot of the stuff with Jeff Bezos as well. But then just read about evolutionary psychology. What from an evolution... Like, why are we so messed up in the head? It's because we've been evolving for millennia <laughs> to uh, to act a certain way... And now the world that we exist in is entirely different from the one that we involved in. So if you understand what those urges are, you understand what's driving you primally. you can start to recognize the signs. You can't fight it. You can't stop, like, feeling those things. But you can at least recognize it and stop it and put it in its right place and say, okay, I'm feeling this. This is what this means. And that takes a, that's hard to do. It's easier to say, but it's really, really hard to do. So that's what I'm
0: working on. Okay. Um, so one more question because I feel like you can talk forever. Um, if you had to go back in time, say this is like your first year of training clients online and you got an extra $3,000 to reinvest into your business, how would you spend that money?
1: If I had to go back first year? Yeah. I don't even know if I'd spend it, to be honest. Okay. I mean, the majority of trainers, like, like first off, if it was my first year, I'd probably work on getting good first, um, which is a step that a lot of people online seem to miss, uh, funny enough. But, uh, but the reality of it is basically every trainer out there that's worth their salt has enough people that he or she probably doesn't even know about, but has enough people that with the right kind of ask, look to him or her as some sort of an expert and also have reason to trust them more than anybody they haven't met. Like somebody who heard about you through somebody they know immediately, if you ask the right way and get in front of them at the right time, will buy from you over somebody they've never met. Yeah. And so it's just a matter of understanding that. So, I mean, I don't know. I'd spend it on books probably. I'd spend it on courses. Yeah. You know, which is why we organized the business the way that we did. Level one of the Online Trainer Academy is a course. I think hiring a business coach early on is actually a really inefficient and really expensive way to probably never get to where you're going because you just simply don't know enough about what you don't know to be able to hire somebody. And the steps to start are always the same for everybody right you've got to you've got to get good you've got to identify where you're unique you've got to figure out how to ask you've got to figure out what kind of content you're good at making i mean that kind of stuff you don't need to pay somebody 5 10 even $30,000 plus for yeah. which is why we structured our company as a course level 1 that's the most cost efficient direct way to learn that fundamental foundational stuff and then we have a level 2 which is the high end coaching stuff which we vet people closely for so um I would say spend the money understanding humans, probably in a course. I think the Online Trainer Academy is the best one, obviously. But spend your money on that and then understand that you probably, I mean, you definitely don't need to spend money on ads for a long time. Learn how to ask people who you're already connected to doesn't have to be friends or family, but people you're already connected to. Learn how to purposefully expand your network online with people who might be customers or who might know customers. Um, understand the littlest bit about how nodes on networks work. Like who are people who might be connected to other people that you that might be interested in working with you or might be specifically benefit or might specifically benefit from working with you? what kind of material, what kind of networking can you do to connect with them, right, and get them involved? Because social media particularly is, is about serendipity more than anything else. It's about knowing somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody. Yeah. Um, it's, about, it's about exposure. It's about um, putting yourself in the position to catch a lucky break. It's about putting out – it's about saying hi to somebody you haven't spoken to today, actually, Funny enough, today in our community, two separate people told me one of the things that we tell people do is just like have five conversations a day, like literally with anybody, like just like talk to five human beings every day. That's like the best marketing you could ever do. And the way to talk to five human beings is find something they're interested in and celebrate that with them. That's literally the best marketing. So anyway, so we tell people to do this and two people today actually told me separately that they are now engaged because one of them was two years ago, one of them was a year ago. They reached out to somebody who they knew from when a childhood friend and basically said hi based off of this five-a-day, I don't know, call it strategy, that I, that I told them to do. And um, they fell in love and now they're engaged. <laughs> <laughs> nice. But like... That person that you uh, reached out to and said, yo, I saw that uh, guitar riff that you played um, on Facebook. That was pretty sweet, man. You've been playing for a while. You're getting good. Um, That person uh, now knows that you're into fitness in some way. It's not very hard to figure that out if you set up your profile properly. And they might just happen to be at dinner later that week with a family friend who complain that they have low back pain or they wanted to get in shape and guess who's getting that referral now? Mm -hmm. Like that's how, that's literally how business works today. I mean, 93% of word of mouth referrals happen offline in ways that you can't measure. Yeah. You got to put yourself in the position to capture that.
0: Yeah. Um, So maybe for the last question, because we're running out of time, if people wanted to find out more about you and what you do, Mm where can they find you and anything else you want to plug on my show, you can right now. The only other thing
1: I want to plug in the show, because I figure people listening to this probably like podcasts is we have a podcast called the online trainer show. If you're interested in online training, if you want to have fun listening to it, I mean, there's four of us. It's kind of like a half comedy show, half business development show. Uh, So you'll laugh, you'll learn. um, You'll probably think that we're uh, not good at podcasting, which is fine. And that's called The Online Trainer Show, wherever you listen to podcasts. If you if you want to find all the episodes, um, onlinetrainer.com slash podcast. Uh, other than that, the Online Trainer Academy, you know, it's, it's the first ever certification, first ever textbook for online training. We've been doing this since 2013. We've done this with 30,000, 35,000 almost now, plus people in 87 countries. Like, we can help you. Uh, so go to onlinetrainer.com slash academy. You can learn more about it. Join up there.
0: Awesome. So thank you so much for your time. This was amazing. Thanks, buddy.